Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. We want to uh, welcome you, first of all, of course, that are here in person and all of those online. Let's give them a shout. We have people that join us throughout the city, across the nation, around the world. And uh, we're always so grateful that we can all be together and enjoy this technology, right? So I'm going to throw you a little curveball today because uh, it was announced that today's message was entitled Leadership Has a Heading. I am going to do that in a couple of weeks. And I am calling an audible this morning, and I'm changing my title. So we've been in this series called The Discipleship, and we've been learning about what discipleship is. That it is becoming what? A fully committed follower of Christ. Thank you to nobody that said that with me. And uh, to be fully committed followers of Christ, that is the definition you've heard again and again and again of a disciple. We've been using this little metaphor of a ship. We're calling it the disciple ship. And we've been using the ship as an example as to what discipleship is. And so week one was every ship has a captain. Week two, every ship has a name. Week three, every ship has a helm. Week four, every ship has an anchor. Week five, every ship has as a crew. And today my message is entitled, Every Ship Has a Cost. And here's the thing that you probably know about ships. There's really not too many things in this world that are more expensive than a ship. Uh, how many of you have been on a cruise ship? A bunch of you have been on a cruise ship. Here's the average prices of cruise ships uh, in different cruise lines. You've got right sort of in the middle there, Carnival at uh, half a billion dollars per ship. Uh, but they, of course, can be a lot more expensive than that. The most expensive cruise ship in the world is the Allure. And here it is, $1.5 billion. That's more money than I make in an entire year. I mean, that's just like a crazy amount of money. And I thought just for fun, because you know I love boats and I love ships and I love talking about this stuff. And so I thought I would talk about celebrities because celebrities, as soon as they make money, you know what they do? They go out and buy a yacht. And so I'm going to show you some celebrity yachts and give you the price tag just for fun because I looked them all up. And so the first one is this one. This is Steven Spielberg's Seven Seas, $200 million. Apparently there's money in making movies. Who knew? And uh, this next one belongs to Beyonce and Jay-Z. It's the $70 million yacht, the Galactica Star. But, you know, they're two-income families, so they can afford something like that. You get that, right? <laughs> this is kind of an interesting one, this one here. This belongs, are you ready for this? Belongs to Johnny Depp, or it used to. Uh, kind of interesting because it's old school. Kind of looks a little bit like a pirate ship, doesn't it? But he sold it recently to J.K. Rowling of Harry Potter for $25 million dollars. It's called the Arriva. I like this one, too. This is a beautiful yacht. This one's owned by Bono of U2. Uh, he's got 15 to $20 million into this. Apparently, he doesn't give all his money to charity. Just saying. And the last and final is my favorite, of course, because I love the motor cats. And if you look real close, you can see him standing up there. That's Rafael Nadal, tennis superstar. He only has to win like three thir- tournaments to, win the, to own this thing. $6.5 million for the great white. So I throw that one up there because if any of you are looking for some Christmas present ideas for your pastor, there's a possibility, something I I really like. 
But here's the thing about ships. You realize that yachts and ships are extraordinarily expensive, but what we never think is they cost an immense amount of money to run, to own. I mean, you have to crew them, you have to insure them, you have to put fuel in them. If you have to ask how much that costs, you can't afford it. And if you go anywhere, the average port is somewhere between $1,000 to $2,000 a day to dock your boat. So most of us can't own one of these. I actually don't want to own a yacht. I want a friend that owns a yacht. That's what I want. Well, there's one more ship I want to talk about just for a moment, because everybody's probably wondering how much this ship costs to build, and it's the Starship Enterprise. And the Starship Enterprise has actually been built. It's in China. The owner of NetDragon Video Game built it as their headquarter building in China. It's a full-size replica, 853 feet long, at a price tag of $100 million. So there you go, the Starship Enterprise. Couldn't miss my reference. So what we're going to be talking about today, of course, is the cost of discipleship. And I'm going to tell you a little story that you're all familiar with and then take an interesting turn on it. So we remember Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is hanging out with his disciples and he asks them this question. He says, who do people say I, the son of man, am? And so they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said, yeah, yeah, but, but who do you say that I am? So Peter in a rare moment of lucidity, stands up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Jesus is so thrilled with uh, Peter because he almost always gets the questions wrong, right? He's so thrilled with him and he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. How many of you would agree? So far, this has been a good day for Peter, wouldn't you think? I mean, he won one. Nailed that. I mean, I can just imagine him swinging his arms and swaggering all day like I do with his nostrils flaring. I mean, he's doing so well. Wait till you see what happens next. It's, it's fantastic. It's right after this. You're going to love it. So we're in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, and it says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, for this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. Oh, my. Talk about a reversal of fortune. I mean, just moments later, he was saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You finally got one right. Buoyed with confidence, he rebukes Jesus for saying that he's going to suffer and die. And Jesus turns to him and says, Get behind me, Satan. How surprised do you think Peter was with that? He just called me Satan. What happened to blessed be Simon Barjona? I like that one a whole lot better. Well, let's carry on and see what else happens because this is where I'm going. This is where we're going to drill down in this very next verse. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is there to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? 
For what will a man give in exchange for a soul? For the Son of Man will come in his glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. You know, one of the things we like to do, and let's be honest about it, we like to make fun of Peter, don't we? Particularly preachers. We like to point out the bonehead mistakes he makes, the dumb things he says, every time he's putting his foot in his mouth. And here's what I would like to point out to you, and you're not going to like it. When it comes to Peter... We are far more like him than we're willing to admit. See, the first part of this story was Peter understood who Jesus was, right? And we all understand who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We know he's Messiah. We know he is Lord. We know that he is the Savior. There's nobody in this room probably that couldn't explain that to me. And we know that we know that we know that we know that that's who he is. But what we do not understand was the next part of this, which was the cost of discipleship. You see, when it comes to our faith, we're pretty light duty. Let's face it, we like to emphasize the good word, not just the word. I mean, most of us love those scriptures, don't we? We can quote the ones that say things like, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Yeah! I pray that you would prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world. God always leads me into triumph. We know all those ones. But we don't often quote the other ones that are things like, you will have tribulation in this world, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. How many have that one up in your fridge? How many have the one up in your fridge that says, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution in this world? Anybody got that fridge magnet? They don't even sell fridge magnets like that. And we are far more like Peter than we think. We get, we understand who Christ is as the Savior, but we don't understand who he truly is as the Lord, and we truly don't understand the doctrine of suffering. The doctrine of what? I know a bunch of you just said that. And you know what? Most of us have never actually heard a sermon on the doctrine of suffering. We don't even know what it is. So, you know, there's a few Christian classics that are out there. A bunch of them you've probably read. Things like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. A lot of you read that. Or maybe C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. But one of the great classics of all time that has stood the test of time is a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. It's less known and read than the others, but it's a classic nonetheless. And let me tell you the story of Bonhoeffer to kind of underscore what I'm going to say today. So Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany during Nazi Germany. He began a church in 1935 in Germany. Uh, he immediately began to recognize that Hitler was really offside with God. A lot of other pastors didn't. Pastors were actually acquiescing and endorsing Hitler during that time. They were buying into the whole Aryan race and Aryan gender thing. And they were missing out on this whole idea. And, and, and he saw it, along with a few other pastors like Martin Niemöller that I mentioned a few weeks ago. And uh, there was only a few of them. And so he began to speak even from the pulpit against Hitler. By 1937, the Gestapo raided their church and shut it down. And he was banned from preaching publicly. He went underground. He had a secret seminary. He probably, for the next couple of years, raised up some 500 pastors that understood what it was to be fully committed followers of Christ. By 1940, he had got involved with the German resistance. And, of course, some of you know the story. They launched a plan to assassinate Hitler 
which was a failed attempt, some of you know this, and because he was part of it, in 1945 in February, he got arrested and he got thrown in a concentration camp. German pastor, now in a concentration camp. April of that year, 1945, he was executed by hanging just days before the liberation of Germany and Europe by the Allies. Interesting that this man previously had written this book, The Cost of Discipleship, and actually had gone and lived it all out in his own life. And there's a primary thesis in his book, if you haven't read it, and it really surrounds the, the grace of God. And he, you probably heard of some of this, what I'm going to share with you. He divided grace into two versions of grace, and he called one version cheap grace and the other version costly grace. And for him, cheap grace was this. Cheap grace was forgiveness without true per- per- repentance. It was communion without confession. It was discipleship without obedience and suffering. And then there was costly grace, knowing that the grace of Christ came to us at a great price, and we too have to deny ourselves and pay that price of discipleship. And so costly grace was forgiveness, but with a sense of deep, broken, and contrite heart. It was radical obedience to do what Christ asked you to do and to go where Christ asked you to go. And of course, a discipleship that understood that you will pay a price and that you will suffer to follow Christ. And then what he does in the book is he takes you into the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, this is the picture of radical discipleship in the Sermon on the Mount. And any of you who've read, and I know you all have, the Sermon on the Mount, when you're reading through this stuff, you're going, are you kidding me? Are you serious? You're reading through these things because they are so counterintuitive. They are so against the grain of everything we are. I mean, Jesus says that you should love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you and to pray for your enemies. He tells you if if someone compels you to go one mile, you go with him too. He says... If someone takes your coat, you give them the tunic as well. He says that if your arm offends, you cut it off. If your eye offends, you pluck it out. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. He goes on and on and on. And you're reading this stuff and you're saying, you've got to be kidding because it's radical discipleship. Instantly, incidentally, I'm writing a book on this, my third book in this series, Greater Purpose, Greater Passion. The last book is Greater Perspective. And it's all about the Sermon on the Mount and how it takes us to a whole other level of Christianity and a whole other level of discipleship. And so when we look at our world today and we see how Christians are acting, we have to ask ourselves our question, have we really, really embraced the cost of discipleship? So I think what I need to do is I need to go back to the beginning. I need to start where our journey begins or many people in this church. So one of the things you know is that when we end a service here at Church of the Rock, we always end it with an invitation. And we ask people to invite Christ into their hearts, and we ask them to raise their hand. You've all seen it a hundred times. You've said the prayer a hundred times. You've all seen it. You all know we do that. And people always challenge me on this, and they say, Pastor Mark, you're doing the altar call wrong. That's not how you do it. And I say to them, first of all, it's not an altar call. It's an invitation. We don't do altar calls. We're not calling anybody up to the altar. We're giving them an invitation, and that's all it is. It's just an invitation. It's just an invitation to start the journey towards discipleship. It's like a wedding. You've all probably been to a wedding, and and somebody says this. They say, well, they ended up at the altar. 
And I always crack up. I think, ended up? You haven't ended anything. You haven't even started yet. You've just begun. You know, love is blind. Marriage is an eye-opener. You'll find out all about it in a moment. It was like this, this woman, she's getting married to this guy, and the preacher says, do you take this man for better or for worse? She says, well, he ain't going to get no better, and he can't get no worse, so I'll just take him as he is. <laughs> And you know what? That's what the grace of God does. It just takes us as we are. And I want you to think about the invitation that Jesus gave to his disciples to become disciples. He said, follow me and I will, what? Make you. I will make you fishers of men. And so all it was on the beaches of of, of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, all it was was an invitation to start the journey. It wasn't the end of anything. It was the beginning. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Or in other words, I will make you disciples. And so did he pick them because they had it all together? They had nothing together. They weren't prepared for anything. He says, look, accept the invitation, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. See, on that metaphor, let me ask you this question. If you go fishing, what do you do first? Do you catch a fish first or or clean the fish first? (laughs) It's not a trick question. You have to catch them first. You have to catch the fish first, and then you can clean them. So somebody reminded me, we were doing the exchange this week, and someone reminded me of a story I'd actually almost completely forgotten about. And it was about the very first Bible study I ever taught. And I'll, I'll tell you, it's super embarrassing, but I'll tell it anyway. So after I came to Christ, uh, I had a bunch of heathen friends. We were just a bunch of rabble-rousers. I came to Christ. I was really interested in, in leading my friends to Christ and teaching them about things of God. And I came up with this great idea to start a Bible study for my non-Christian friends. And I called it, you ready for this? I called it B&B. Bible and beer. <laughs> That's what it was called. And so I, Tuesday night, I invited all my friends over for Bible and beer. I said, you bring the cases of, of, of beer, I'll bring the cases of Bibles. They all had beer or knew how, where to get it. None of them had Bibles. <laughs> now my friends were such boneheads. I mean, imagine this. They thought, there's beer? I'm coming. They came to a Bible study because we had beer. And so all these friends of mine came to this Bible study. They didn't, they didn't know Jesus from Adam. They didn't know anything. And they all show up. They bring their cases of beer. I handed out Bibles. We sat there all night drinking beer and studying the Bible. Now, this is even a funnier part of this. So I had no idea what I was talking about. I, I just was teaching from the Bible stuff. I didn't even know what I was talking about. I was just making it up as I went along. Nobody noticed. You know what? Some things haven't changed much, right? <laughs> and I know some people look at that story and go, Pastor Mark, that's, ri- that's ridiculous. What would Jesus say? I don't think Jesus would have been too upset about that because all it was was an invitation to start where you were. But here's my question for you. What would you think if me and my friends stayed there and we never moved and we never progressed and we were still doing Bible and beer? Imagine this, if you were part of this church and this this morning we announced we're starting a new Bible study called Bible and Beer. Bring Bring your beer, bring your Bibles if you have one. I mean, you would think that's ridiculous. But you see, you have to start somewhere. We begin the journey with the follow me. So here's where we go, because once we accept the invitation, there is an immense price to pay. He said this. We'll go back to to the verse. I'll read it to you again. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
So if you accept the invitation, he says, now this is what I need you to do. I need you to deny yourself, and I need you to take up your cross. Did you catch it? It's not his cross. Jesus is the only one that could take up Jesus' cross. He and he alone went to the cross, and he did it once and for all. It's done. We don't have to take up his cross. That's not what it's saying. He says you have to take up your cross. And what we're going to discover today is that every one of us, if we're a disciple of Christ, we have an individual cross that we ourselves must bear. And we even have that expression in our culture, don't we? Everyone has a cross to bear. Everybody has their cross to bear, right? Your mother-in-law moves in with you, and you say, oh, that's my cross to bear. I mean, people, people use this all the time. They understand what it means. It means that, you know, you wouldn't otherwise choose to do this, but it's what you've got in life, and you understand that's how life works. And so you accept this. And so every single one of you, regardless where you are, you all have a cross to bear. I can't point out all the crosses there are. You and only you alone can figure out what Christ is asking you to do and what he is is asking you to bear and the cross he's asking you to carry. But I can give you some categories. And so here it is. I'm going to throw it on the screen. Every ship has a cost. And when it comes to discipleship, the cost of discipleship kind of takes on three forms, either physical, relational, or emotional. And when I talk about physical cost, I'm actually including material cost. I'm referring to financial cost, perhaps, anything within the physical or material world. And here's what Paul says about it, because Paul's sort of fascinating, because towards the end of his life, he's writing from prison, and he's talking about the longing of his heart, and he talks about where he had been and who he was as a person, and how he was willing to give it all up and count it all as rubbish for this. And this is what he says his goal is. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I'm going to just pause there for a moment. We all know that. We love that. I mean, how many of you want to know God? How many of you want to know the power of his resurrection? Oh, yeah, the power of his resurrection. Oh, we love this verse. You know what we don't love? The next part of the verse. Because the next part of the word says that you may know him or I may know him and the powers of resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Why do I always skip over that part? Why is it we don't really understand that? And I think when we look at North American Christianity today, I don't think we get this. See, Christianity is, if we look at Jesus' teaching, he actually told us in our text that you would deny yourself, take up your cross, Follow me, and he says, and there will be a reward for you in heaven. And I think if there was aliens appeared from outer space and they looked down at North American Christianity and maybe they tuned into the TV stations and they started watching televangelists, I think they would get the uh, impression that Christianity believes that paradise should be here on earth and you should get your reward here and now. And they would look at these televangelists that are, you know, driving Rolls Royces and flying around in jets and living in mansions and all these things. And they go, oh, that's clearly what Christianity is. And when we look into scripture, there's nothing in, in, in scripture whatsoever about those things. And what Jesus actually says to us is that we need to deny ourselves and take up our cross and that our reward is going to come later on. And I know people you know, really don't understand this. You look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. It's interesting. Because Jesus kind of talks about, about when we do things and we get our reward on earth, we actually forfeit our reward in heaven. Go look it up for yourself. Particularly when you do things for the recognition of men. If you get recognition from the men, from men and from people, 
then you're actually giving up your reward in heaven for that. And that makes me a little bit nervous because here I am, I'm this, did you know I was on television? Did you know I was a celebrity? I mean, people love me out there. They think I'm awesome. And that makes me, that makes me a little nervous, right? Because it means I'm getting rewards on earth. And so people say, oh, Pastor Mark, don't worry about it. When you get to heaven, there's going to be a great big mansion for you. Well, first of all, I don't want a mansion. I want a yacht. Haven't you been listening to, to, to this story? But secondly, I'm a little worried about that. I'm afraid that when I get to heaven, I'm going to be living in a dumpster in a back lane right next door to Joel Osteen's shopping cart. That's what I worry, that's what I worry about. And, and I look into scripture. I don't, I don't see anything that resembles th- that kind of thing in scripture. We look at what happened with the rich young ruler, for example. Interesting story, right? Uh, so the rich young ruler, you all know the story. He comes along and he, he wants to know what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. He gets all the answers correct. He's keeping the laws. Everything's pretty good. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. He says, sell all your goods, give them to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven, and come and follow me. And who remembers what he did? Who remembers? He dropped his head like this and he walked away sorrowful because he had great riches. What did he just do? He just chose his earthly wealth over a relationship with Christ. And don't miss the little piece in this. There was two things that, that Jesus said about it. He said, number one, if you give away your goods to all the poor, he says, then you will have treasures in heaven. What, what's going to be better, treasures on earth or treasures in heaven? I mean, that's a better reward, but don't miss the second part. The second part of the, is this. He says, and come and follow me. Here's what I think. I've told you this before. He was inviting him to be one of his 12 disciples. Do you know how I know that? Because Jesus was going to need a replacement soon. He was getting a dropout, right? <laughs> Judas, Judas wasn't going to make it. He was going to need a replacement. He's thinking, I like this guy. Judas is going to bail on me. I'll get this guy. We don't have to have Matthias in the New Testament in the book of Acts. We'll get this guy right now. And he didn't realize that he was being invited to go on the adventure of a lifetime. Now, let me ask you a bold question. You think about it for a moment. If Jesus appeared right now here in the 21st century in the flesh and was gathering disciples together and he came to you and he asked you this question to sell it all, give it all away and come and follow me for three and a half years on the adventure of the lifetime, how many of you would do it? Really? 10% 10 of you? The rest of you are out? Are, are, Are you missing this? Are are, are you missing this? You're identifying with the rich young ruler? Is is that where you're going with this? Just help me out here. He came in the flesh. He asked you. I'm going to repeat the question. He asked you to be one of the 12. How many are in? Wow, half of you. Wow. Lord, help me. I'm I'm just about ready to quit my job, folks. Because apparently I'm not very good at this. If I can't convince you to follow Jesus, what am I doing wrong here, man? But I like your honesty. (laughs) I mean, we're being honest, aren't we? The fact is that most of us, we're not sure we want to do it. Many of us are going to identify with the rich young ruler. So Paul is an interesting case because he said, my desire is not only to know him and the power of his resurrection, we don't want to miss out on the good stuff here, but he says that I may be conformed to his death and the fellowship of his suffering. Did did Paul suffer? How do you do with that? 
Do you remember what he writes about at 2 Corinthians? He says, well, let me tell you, let me give you my resume. He says, I've been uh, flogged with whips uh, five times. I've been beaten with rods three times. I've been shipwrecked twice. I've been imprisoned many, many times. I've been stoned. I've been abused. I've been naked. I've been this. I've been that. He goes, list, goes on and on. Lists all this thing. And how many get the, the, the impression that he sounds like he's bragging about it? How many think he feels like he's bragging about it? You know why it sounds like he's bragging? Because he is. He's bragging about it. He says, I would rather boast in my infirmities. Why is he bragging about this stuff? Because I'll tell you what, he understood that those things that he was suffering for the cause of Christ were his validation of his discipleship. And the amount of cars or Rolls Royces or mansions or private jets you own is not a validation of anything other than your worldliness. And when he says, I would rather boast in my infirmities, what he is saying is, I understand the price I need to pay to be a follower of Christ. So I want to tell you a story. It's a powerful story. And uh, you've probably heard the the first part of this story before, so I'm going to give you the short version of it because I want to get to the ending of this story, which is very poignant. So about 15 years ago, I took a group of people to Mexico on a mission trip. We went into the Sierra Madre Mountains. We went into the high plains of the mountains, and we arrived at this compound of a missionary couple who had been there 25 years. And their names were Scotty and Phyllis. Here's a picture of them. Uh, great couple, been there, given their lives to serve this, in this place. And uh, so we arrived there, and uh, they ministered to a bunch of different communities around where they lived. And there was one particular community they were going to take us to, and we were going to minister to that community. And they were explaining to us that it was up the mountain road, about an hour, 45 minutes up this road, and it was literally the end of the road. You could not go any further into the Sierra Madre Mountains. And as a consequence, it was an outlaw town. And when people were fleeing the law, that's where they went because the police would not follow them up into that place. And so we boarded into the van the next day and up we went up this mountain and there we are in his van. We're going across these bridges that are made of nothing more than logs and mud. And we made our way up to this village and we got up to this village and we had brought, uh, there was another vehicle with us, brought building materials and we got up to this community. We had unloaded the material and we had wood and we had tin and we were going to add on to the church. Scotty had built that church there and he was going to double the size of this church. The pad was poured. We were ready to go. So we spent the day ministering, going into the schools, and I was thinking, these people don't look like outlaws to me. I don't see any gunslingers here or anything going, no, no banditos going on here. And they looked fine, they looked like normal people. I thought, I don't know why Scotty thinks these are a bunch of criminals up here running from the law. So the next day, we came back up the mountain again for our second day to start the construction on the addition on the church, and all of the building materials, all of them, were gone. Overnight, they all stole them. Every last piece, every scrap of lumber. So we spent the whole day going and gathering it back up. It was in people's backyards. And we went and we gathered all this together. And so we started building this, this building, built this, uh, started building. We didn't finish it, but we got it started and got the walls up and got the roof up. And we were starting out. And then on about the third day, we were doing a town-wide, village-wide meeting. It asked me to preach in the church. And I'm, the whole time I'm thinking, what is wrong with these people? Stealing our stuff and they steal from each other, a bunch of outlaws. And I thought, I know how to fix these people. It's right out of the gospel. It's, it's right out of the Sermon on the Mount. All they have to do is learn how to love their neighbor. And I thought, I'm going to preach on loving your neighbor. I'm going to transform this community. I don't care if Scotty couldn't do this in 25 years. Overnight, I'm going to transform this community single-handedly. 
So we had the meeting. People came. I preached to this crowd. Here's a picture. And I'm up there in that nice shirt preaching. And the crowd was, the building was packed. All the men were outside, all standing, looking in the windows. And I preached my guts out about how we need to love our neighbor. And I was so pleased with myself. I thought, what a great message. Good job. I'm patting myself on the back. So then we're about to leave. We get into our van. We start up the van. We drive 100 yards. It runs out of gas. Turns out, while I was preaching to them about loving your neighbor, they siphoned the gas out of our van. And we had to buy it back from them. We had to buy our own gas back from them to get back down the mountain. So we're driving down the mountain, and this is the thought. I didn't say it, but I'm going to tell you because it was in my head. And the thought in my head was, I hate these people. And that was what was in my mind. I mean, Scotty had given his life 25 years to these people. I had spent three days there, and I already hated them. And I couldn't even live my own message to love your neighbor and love your enemy. So we get down the mountain. We get back to the compound. And as soon as we get back to the compound, I start sneezing. And there was some weird thing that every time my nose was running, I was sneezing, other people were too. And I sat down with Scotty and Phyllis and uh, had this conversation with them. And I told them I was sneezing. And they said, yeah, there's some weird fungus that grows up here. And uh, when people with allergies come, uh, they have a hard time. Then they told us the most heartbreaking story, honestly, I've ever heard in my life, really. So he tells us that they had been there for, after 14 years. Their family had never visited them. His son, their daughter-in-law, and their two grandkids. Because the daughter-in-law was afraid to come to Mexico and didn't want to do that. And so she, they hadn't come. Finally, they got up the nerve. And the son said, come on, we've got to go see my parents. And so they came and they drove down to the Sierra Madres and came up to the compound. He had asthma. And the moment he arrived in the compound... He started to lose his breath. He had an asthma attack. His, his, his ventilator wasn't working or his puffer, whatever you call those things. And Scotty knew that his son was having a severe allergic reaction to this fungus or this spores or whatever it was. And he got him in the van. He drove him to the nearest town, which was 20 minutes away. And when he got to the town, there was a pharmacy. And they got into the pharmacy. The pharmacist was not there, was out on lunch or somewhere. And there was a gal behind the counter. He says, I need an EpiPen. Look for an EpiPen. I need it. My son is going to die if you don't give me this EpiPen. She couldn't find it. And his son died right there in his arms. And the whole time... The EpiPen was right on the other side of the counter that could have saved his life. And this immense tragedy, after 14 years, they come and visit him. And within within an hour, his son has died. His daughter-in-law is so upset. Of course she was. Why wouldn't she be? And she ends up going back stateside and took the grandkids. And Scotty and Phyllis never saw her or their grandkids again. It was such a painful price to have to pay And I thought, why are you here? Why are you paying this price? Why are you willing to do this? And here was the remarkable thing. Remember how how upset I was with the people up the mountain? Remember how upset I was about how they didn't like my message, didn't change it in in one hour? And there wasn't a hint of bitterness in the heart of Scotty and Phyllis because they understood, as tragic as it was, it was the cross that they had to bear and the price they had to pay. So the first thing is the physical, material, financial side of things that we might all have to pay. And I'm going to just really quickly go through the last two. The second one is, is relational. And here's what the scripture says about it. it it's, it's another just remarkable verse. 
And so listen to what Jesus says. It's Luke 14, verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And I know we don't understand that. We said, why would he want us to hate our family? That doesn't sound very virtuous. I know some of you hate your family, but trust me, it's not noble. It's not virtuous. You're missing the point. He is not saying we are to hate our family. What he is saying is that when you follow Christ, there is a chance, there is a potential that they will be offended with you and they will turn against you and you have to decide who you're going to love more. Are you going to follow Christ and be willing to pay the price relationally? And he refers to that as taking up your cross and following him. And I want you to regard Mary for a moment. Remember Mary, Virgin Mary? She was, she was told she would bear this child. She was a virgin. And she says, let it be done unto me according to your word. So she accepted the invitation. What was the price that she would have paid for that? She would have been so reproached in her community in the first century, an unwed mother. I mean, her parents, how would they have felt about their daughter being an unwed pregnant woman? And how about Joseph? Well, we know how he felt about it. He was going to put her away until the angel spoke to him and said, no, this is my plan. The reproach, the price that she was willing to pay to follow him was an extraordinary price. Do you know that in many Muslim and Hindu countries and many other countries around the world, when people come to Christ, they get disowned by their own family? And they have to decide, am I going to follow Christ? Even if it means that I might have to give up my family? It's a big thing to ask. And I know there's some of you, even in this room right now, that when you came to Christ, you lost friends and you lost family and people have turned against you and you had to make that decision. And you realize this is my cross to bear. I have got to be willing to pay the price even relationally to follow him. So the first thing is physical. The second thing is relational. And the last and final thing is, is emotional. So Paul talks about that. Remember, he lists all these things. He talks about his flogging and beating and stoning. And then he starts to get into the emotional stuff. And he says, and weariness and tiredness, and I have been abandoned, and I have been persecuted, and I've been left behind. And he says, not to mention all the daily deep concerns of the church that I bear in my heart. And the emotional cost of following Christ is a very real thing. And I'm, this is the world I come from, so I'm going to talk about this. When I look at pastors, the thing that the price they pay, they don't actually have to go to the developing world somewhere. They don't have to travel. They can sleep in their own bed. Do you know that we actually get paid for this? They pay me to do this. Can you believe this? I would do this for free. And yet we have this other price that we pay. Because you know what? We're the guys that are there when people are in their darkest moments of life. And we're the ones who are there. Many times I've been there at a bedside when someone has passed away and been there with their loved one. We lost someone in this church last night. And we're there when people are in their, 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 their lowest moments and they're acting out and they're behaving badly and we're struggling with, with their issues of life and family and tra- tragedy and struggles they've had. And we're sometimes those people that get beaten up by their words. It's true. I mean, the criticism, I mean, you're trying to do well and you end up getting criticized for it. It's bizarre. One night I was meeting with a couple after hours. I thought I was alone in the office. And the husband, I'm not joking, he shouted the F word at me for half an hour straight. 
Finally, he left, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. I let them out the door, and as I walked by, one of the gals was working late just down the hall from me and heard every word. And I said, I am so sorry you had to hear all of that. To which she said, oh, it's just like what it's like at home. I said, what? <laughs> I, hope, I hope not. I hope not. And so we you know, had this pandemic we went through. I don't know if you know this, but the pastors are dropping like flies. Let me tell you why they're quitting the ministry. They're not quitting because they're tired of people. They're not tired of people. They're not quitting because they're tired of preaching the gospel. You know what they are? They're worn out emotionally. They are drained and they're emptied and they're eviscerated and they have nothing left. And they're going off to sell cars or sell real estate or whatever they're doing. And I had one phone me just this last week. And he said, he was telling me about all the emotional stuff and the pain he was going through. And then he said this to me. He said, Mark, I didn't sign up for this. I said, well, hate to correct you, but yes, you did. (laughs) It's exactly what you did. You signed up for this. When we signed on and we said we would follow him, he said, take up your cross and follow me. This is our cross to bear. And when we help people through the toughest times of their life, that's our cross to bear. And you see, the point I'm making here is we all have a cross to bear. It might be physical, it might be relational, it might be emotional, it might be all of those things put together. And you have to ask yourself this question, is God going to get you through it? The answer is yes. Because he said, no temptation will come upon you that you are not able to bear. And that he will give you grace and he will make a way of escape. You see, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said this. He said, salvation is free, but the discipleship will cost you your life. Every ship has a cost. And we need to be willing to pay the price to be a follower of Christ. Let's stand together. All right. We're going to do something here we always do. I said I was going to do it, and we're all going to bow our heads, close our eyes just for a moment. And uh, I'm going to ask you to pray something today. I asked you if you would follow Jesus and go for three and a half years. Uh, I might make you pray that today. And so we'll see where that goes. But First of all, we begin at the beginning. And the beginning is the invitation. And if you're here today and you've never made that decision to follow him, you've never invited him into your heart to be your Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And so in the room, with every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around, if you don't know if you're on your way to heaven, and you don't know if Jesus is your Lord, I want you to just slip up your hand right now in the room so I can see it. And thank you. Thank you. Hands popping up around the room. And then for people online, if you're not sure, there's a little hand that comes up on your screen and you hit that. And don't miss out on this opportunity. And I didn't see all your hands, but we're going to say this prayer together with those online and those in the room. And it's an acceptance, an acceptance of the invitation. But it's, all, it's also an agreement that we are going to follow him and take up our cross, which is going to be a tough prayer. But I'm hoping you'll say it with me. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. That you paid the ultimate price. That you died on the cross for my sin. Rose on the third day. And forever lived to be my Lord. And today you're calling me. And you're saying, follow me. And I will make you a disciple. And today I want to accept the call to deny myself, to take up my cross, and to follow you. 
and to do what you ask me to do, to go where you ask me to go, and to pay whatever price is necessary for me to pray, pay. And I thank you, Lord, that you take me on the trip of a lifetime. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.